0: Hello and welcome to Talk Dialogue to Me, produced by Simon Fraser University's Morris J. Wask Center for Dialogue. On every episode, we will speak with dialogue practitioners about their inspiring work and find out more about all the incredible things dialogue can do. This is Talk Dialogue to Me.
1: Dialogue to Me podcast. This is a podcast produced by Simon Fraser University's Morris J. Wasp Center for Dialogue, and it is hosted on the unceded traditional lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Uh, My name is Ella Dijakay, and I am your host today. It is my great pleasure to launch this podcast series with a very special episode featuring the Circle Project. The Circle Project was created in 2019 by filmmaker Brenda Longfellow and restorative justice advocate Brenda Morrison, and it is an evolving collaboration of artists and formerly incarcerated women dedicating to producing provocative art together. They were inspired by indigenous modalities of community-based justice and are committed to imagining alternatives to the violence and dehumanization of carceral systems and logics. Broadly accessible online and disseminated through multiple platforms, this art project uses imagination, storytelling, performance, and play to generate rich and intimate encounters with the complex and layered experience of women who are reclaiming their lives on the outside. And today we're gonna be talking specifically about What Fools These Mortals Be, an inventive retelling of Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, performed as a series of tableau vivants by a group of 14 formerly incarcerated women. Um, And I'm so pleased to be in conversation today with three uh, exceptional women, really. Um, Natasha Warren, who is one of the artists, uh, Brenda Longfellow and Brenda Morrison, who are co-producers, And I'm going to start maybe with Brenda Longfellow and ask you, Brenda, to give us a little overview of what this project is and how it fits within the overall Circle project.
0: Okay, delighted to be here and uh, delighted to see my uh, two favorite people on on Zoom here today. Um, So the the project had a long genesis. Um, As you noted, the Circle project started in 2019 And Brenda Morrison and I had this idea to invite formerly incarcerated women. We didn't know where this was gonna go uh, and we wanted to invite them to a circle, to a talking circle. And we started, I think it was one October uh, in a community center. And we had a colleague, Alison Granger Brown, who had uh, contacts with many of the women uh, who she'd met inside. And we had about I think 10 or 12 show up for the first one and just had an extraordinary circle and from there they invited other women we brought in uh, elders who did facilitation Um, one of them uh, holy cow was an elder that had worked with a lot of the women inside in Fraser Valley Um, and it just developed this other kind of community uh, of talking, of sharing, there's lots of laughter, there's tears, and we just began in that way, talking. Um, The first project we did, The Circle, is an interactive documentary that's on our website that really tries to create that wonderful community of sharing and people telling their stories. So that was the first project we did. It was supposed to be an, you know, on-site installation, but The pandemic turned everything around, so we had to pivot and became an online project. The second project, um, we we got a grant, a social science and humanities research grant. Um, Thank you, people of Canada, for supporting this project. And with that, we decided to scale up a bit and started a collaboration with a dad, Hannah, who's a Vancouver, well-known Vancouver artist. Um, And it was really exciting to start working with him because it just it just moved it up uh, a different level. And because he had such a unique practice. So his practice is often taking over a classical art piece and reimagining it with different kind of bodies and different kind of content. And in this case, we started the project, as we always do, with a series of talking circles facilitated by elders and we showed the women some of the work that a dad had done. We talked about, you know, art practice. Um, we showed them Frida Kahlo. We began doing charcoal drawings and just some kind of fun art things. And out of that process, there was a kind of community that bonded together. And one of the women uh, said, "I would like to do a Midsummer's Night Dream, Jessie." <laughs> And I asked her at one point, where did that come from? Because as soon as she said, A Midsummer's Night Dream, I think all our eyes lit up and it was like, oh my God, that's an amazing idea. And she had, you know, 20 years ago, had auditioned to be a part of it in high school, did not get chosen, sadly, and had kind of carried this longing for 20 years through a whole bunch of trauma and through a stay in um, Fraser Valley, um, etc. And so this became this opportunity to do it. And then we started thinking about, well, how are we going to do it? You know, a dad really only did tableau vivant of an image. This is a whole play. So we had to really kind of expand our, our process and start thinking about how to translate that into something that was doable with our resources within this limited amount of time. And with the You know, with the energy available to us from the women who were going to school, I think, Natasha, you were going to school, but people were working, people had kids, you know, it was very complicated um, carving out the time to do such an incredibly ambitious project.
1: And you talk about this beautiful image of these women sitting in circle uh, with the elders, but how important was this this dialogue
0: piece in the process of co-creating the art? Well, that was our process. So our process always begins in circle. And so um, we always checked in. We always had a circle at the beginning and the end of each session. And then we had brainstorm sessions about how to do this. Um, a dad brought in his mother, who's a, a former clown and dramaturge, And so she helped us. Then we brought in a professional team of you know camera crew, uh, wardrobe, hair, makeup, etc., But along the way, it was the women working with some of these professional artists to think about, well, what could the costumes look like? How do we imagine doing this? What are the kind of poses that we might adopt? If it's gonna be a series of tableau vivant, then how, you know, let's try um, doing some of this. So we had sessions where we'd play theater games as one does, um, and that led to a kind of roughing out of what we would do within within this time period. So there was a lot of dialogue, there's a lot of exchange, um, and it was really grounded in, I think, well, Natasha should talk more about that, but grounded in what I felt uh, was this very robust, really beautiful community of women who were caring for each other and sharing with each other, and who we were having a lot of fun. It was so much fun to do. It was incredibly joyful and playful and fun.
1: I really love that you're talking about joy because I think it's a piece we we often forget about in these processes. And it seems so very important to how this art became so alive and and the effect it had. I think on the audiences that were able to see it. Um, is there something that left you um, transformed at the end of the performance, the first time you
0: saw it? Well, the first time we saw it was when we were filming it. <laughs> so we filmed this entire crazy ambitious thing. I think there were 70 Teplofie ball and it was two and a half days. I, you know, it was just a ridiculously short period of time. So it was, you don't get a sense of something when it's, when it's happening and it's, you know, oh, we have to do this There's so-and-so's late. Oh, we're going to have to, you know, at one point, I think Jody was Puck and then, or um, uh, was one character and, and got sick, had to leave. And then we had to get Natasha to come in and fill that position. So you're not imagining it when you're in the middle of it, you're attending to the bajillion details of pulling it together. But it was when we started seeing the cuts of it. And, you know, we just had this wave of nostalgia about that was so much fun. Oh, I remember when she did that, and they did that. And um, so it wasn't really until the end that we we began to experience the joy in the process, you're just anxious about trying to get this thing done. (laughs) Or I was. Maybe your, Brenda, Natasha, your experience was different.
1: <laughs> well, let, I, I hear Natasha laughing. So I, I want to go to you, Natasha, next. And um, so Natasha, you're a 45-year-old. Years old. You're part of the LGBTQ2 uh, plus community in Vancouver. You were born in Newfoundland but raised in Vancouver by your mom. And you've been an artist since you were a little girl. Um, you're also an extreme sports enthusiast, a musician, a multimedia artist and your superpower is positivity. Um, Natasha, uh, can you tell us a little bit about what it was to be part of that process, to be in circle with all these
2: women? Like, what what did this do to you personally? Well, I I must say that it was was pretty powerful and um, I loved how we all came together to, achieve the same thing that we all didn't know what was going to be. <laughs> we all, including the Brandes, which we call them. <laughs> we all thought that, um, well, we didn't really like know how it was going to end up. And the whole process of getting to that point was, was so fun. Like we had a lot of fun with it. Um, I know that a lot of people were nervous at first um, being vulnerable and, not knowing what to expect and I thought that was really a a fun part of it, Uh, especially when we finished and just seeing the the finished product. I think everybody felt a real sense of pride and they're all really proud of how it turned out and um, the whole process of being in the circle and forming this community of women who were previously incarcerated with um, us as veterans, there was a few veterans that had been out for a while and we'd worked on this other project already with with them. And to finish, or sorry, when they got out, um, they were just fresh out, maybe six weeks. And so they were really like fresh out of, out of prison. So um, I think they were really nervous just to even be out. And some of them were in their really long periods, like they are doing 20 year bits and like really long time. So it also helped them to um, in their reintegration actually. And they, it helped, I've heard from them that it helped a lot of them not to re- uh, re- reoffend and breach probation and go back in because they had something to be out here for. That was more, it was bigger than themselves. And a lot of them I think were successful in still staying out because of this project. So I think that that was a something that you, We didn't expect, I didn't think that would happen, but yeah, it it really created a great community, um, doing it and getting together every week was something that we all looked forward to after a while, you know, before it was like, oh, you are trying to get out of the house and you're just kind of like, oh, I got to get on the bus and it's, it's raining, it's cold, but you know, once you get there, it's like, yeah, I'm so happy I came. Um, (laughs) yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun and it was something that I looked forward to every week. And then when it ended, I was, there was a. Visible void in my life.
1: (laughs) So, um, Were there any difficult conversations in this process? You talked about people having to kind of get really vulnerable and uh, share maybe some some things that were difficult or maybe also not being necessarily very trusting when you come out of these circumstances. Trust can be really difficult. Uh, Were there any surprising or difficult conversations that came up in your circles?
2: Yeah, um, I think so because... We would pass around the feather and order any talking piece that we brought or Brenda brought and um, we would be sitting in circle and it's kind of a a space where we feel um, we feel okay that we can share things where it won't leave the circle so I can't actually talk about what we talked about in the circle as it being
0: a A kind of sacred
2: space yeah Mm -hmm. but um, I can say that we we were all sharing things that we wouldn't normally share outside of the circle. And uh, a lot of people were brought to tears a lot of the time. We had to have a Kleenex box, you know, in the middle of the room and we'd have debriefs and um that kind of thing. But yeah, it was a safe space. And that's why they actually were able to talk about maybe they were having a hard time, you know, being out or a hard time with with finding friends or family again or whatever it might have been. Or just maybe losing people or, you know, Um, But yeah, that was another beautiful thing is that they we created a community within ourselves, helping each other through these things. So I think that also played a part in them staying out when you are
1: thinking about the potential of these sorts of arts based approaches. Um, Do you think this can really deeply support the healing of women who are currently incarcerated, as well as, like you just described, those who are leaving incarceration? Um, Do you think there's potential for developing these types of approaches
2: within the carceral system as well? Absolutely. Um, I know that in this case, it, it really did work. So this is just one example, and I'm sure there's many more about art being, well, of course, being a healing um, a healing process for a lot of people, whether it's from being incarcerated or, or other. Um, I know that when I was inside, I had an art teacher there who helped me through my sentence and helped me um, with my art. With my art. Um, when I first went there, there was nobody in the class. I was the only person in that art class. But after, um, I'd say a month, two months go by, we started getting slowly more and more people. And then when I left, the whole place was packed. Like there was, I think 25 women in there. Like there was standing room only after that. Like, cause I had encouraged them to come and they were like, well, I'm not really an artist. I'm like, you don't have to be. And it's actually just for therapy or you can learn to be a better artist or you could just learn to do any kind of art. And it didn't have any, like we had a workbook kind of that you worked through and it had these little exercises. You didn't have to do them all but it also made people realize that they are artists and it doesn't have to just be drawing with pencils or like, um, you know, it could be, we had scrapbooking class as well. Now they think about that and scrapbooking was a huge, huge success in there. You know, that's just part of creativity does create healing. And um, I know that a lot of people loved those classes. We even had a musician or a musician that came in and, after I had learned guitar in there, I taught myself, I'd learned guitar in there. And that part that kept me through or took me through my sentence and healing. And um, yeah, I became a musician. I started a band in there. And then we got that um, guitar teacher in and she started teaching people guitar and they were like, I'm not a musician. I'm like, well, not yet. to class and then i had another big class it was just me and the art teacher me and the musician and then we had more and more coming and then we formed a band so yeah and it really did help them through it made them feel like they weren't even where they were to do these things yeah i've carried on outside as well so
0: can i just say we originally wanted to do this inside and in the beginning of the project had discussions with the who was it brenda the assistant Warden at FBI, and they started to get a little leery, uh, you know, just about building a set, power saws, etc. But there, there, was a certain kind of openness. Maybe we could negotiate something. And then COVID hit, and it was just no way. You are not bringing us inside. And then, you know, we tried to resurrect the conversation. It was just a flat no. It was, it was just too complicated. Allegedly, it's not part of their mandate. And they said, no, but we would love to do something with the women inside. But Brenda has a lot of insight into the healing process of art making. So we should go to Brenda. That's a
1: perfect segue, Brenda, because I wanted to ask you, um what role can art space dialogue play in restorative justice? because we often see from the outside um perceptions of what punitive justice looks like, but very few into what restorative justice looks like. so what what is the role for art space dialogue?
3: Wow, this dialogue has already worn my heart and take me. Right back to a year ago, when we were deeply immersed in this uh, what I would call serious play. It was like you know it was and it, it was serious play. We didn't. It's like you were we were kids again. We didn't know what you were doing when you headed out to play. We didn't. You know we, we and we just it was serious play. Like there was very serious intention and 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 thought that Brenda Longfellow and I put into the project. But it was also about play because as Natasha so eloquently said, is that art is a healing process and art opens our crea- creativity. So, and and our willingness to step into wonder and to story and to our own lives. And in a tableau vivant, we're stepping into, you know, these masterpieces that have captured our imagination over time and place. And so these women are, are, you know, in a playful, supported environment are stepping into a new imagination of themselves in the world. So that's the big imagination that's happening here and supporting this really serious play and creativity. In my work with, um, with on, on rights, you know, we lose our right to play when we become an adult. It's, you know, and I'm like, well, maybe the world would be a, a better place if we all had the right to play you know, and the right to rest, and all those rights that we lose when we become serious adults. So maybe more play is the way to go. <laughs> so, but but if you if you juxtapose the idea of restorative justice with you know conventional criminal legal um, justice, you know the idea of punishment shuts us down. What do we do when we shut people down by an imposed punishment? We we sort of cut part of ourselves off and what we need to be as whole people that integrates all of who we are and brings all our lived experience forward because the women that we sat with in circle they are courageous women and they you know they're that sisterhood was strong and I think I learned a lot from them about you know they're courageous how do you rebuild yourself i mean we all have moments where we're not as strong as we'd like to how do you how do you come out of those you know vulnerable times when you're feeling fragmented or you know alienated from your own self how do you how do you go forward and the woman told amazing stories and we laughed together we cried together so restorative justice is about healing it's about becoming whole again And the arts help us do that. Like punishment shuts us down. And when we're thinking about reintegration or people, you know, people who create serious harm are often harmed previously. And that sort of the punishment structure of our carceral state mentality keeps shutting us down, shutting us up. We need opportunities to open us up that are more forward-looking than backward looking so and so and the arts have always been a part of restorative justice a number of years ago we had a restorative art project with graffiti artists around vancouver and uh and that was a restorative justice outcome these beautiful graffiti pieces that um art-based you know projects all around vancouver and it was really it really created a strong community and opened our imagination but arts can also be used as part of a restorative justice process, because arts engage us in a different way. And sometimes dialogue can engage us, but sometimes we don't have the right words. And so we have to do something together. And creating art together is, is an expressive um, process that engages in a different way. So uh, on the, the, the wall of the Center for Restorative Justice, we have a beautiful rendition of Guernica that was done by two young people in uh, the previous Burnaby Detention Center, and they were in serious conflict, didn't know what to say to, to each other, and they produced this beautiful tapestry, their rendition of Guernica, and it's, it's just, you just stand there and look at it, and you just, you're, you know, you're hopeful for them and for their futures.
1: I really love that and appreciate this conversation because I feel we're we're not having a deeper conversation at our society level about how we conceive of of punishment. And um, the question I wanna ask you now is, what dialogue do you think we need to have as a society when it comes to prison abolitionism? I know it's a term people get very scared about, but when we see the number of people incarcerated who are themselves victims of oppression, of violence, of systemic wrongs, how do we
0: start having a conversation about abolitionism? You know, I mean, one of the interesting things about having worked on this project for since 2019, it's almost five years now, is that when we started, you know, I mean, there there are groups uh, who are engaged in this work and have been doing this work, like Angela Davis and Gina Dent. But after the summer of 2020, we'll all recall when George Floyd was murdered and there was this outpouring of Reaction against police violence, there was it really seemed like there was this extraordinary kind of opening that the clock was moving the spectrum was moving the conversations were changing. People were understanding that maybe violence and state violence isn't the only way to deal with social harms and to to support community it's not as apparent now that the kind of dynamism of that moment has waned you know it's very hard to sustain that kind of um, you know bodies in the street forever you just can't do it. but I do feel we are a part of an international movement that is about abolition and that is challenging these truths that we accept that oh bad there are bad people, the bad people are in prison that is a good thing they need to be shunned, they need to be banished, they need to be punished. And that is justice. And I think you know the restorative justice movement, the ab- prison abolition movement, you know, overlapping, have a lot of different ways of thinking about justice. Uh, as do indigenous communities. I mean, really, the circle and the idea of a harm has been committed; therefore, we have to heal. We have to heal, you know, the person who's been harmed, but we have to heal the person who has perpetuated the harm. And it's, it's a much more holistic way. And in, in the long r- run, a much more humane and um, loving way of thinking about how you move forward from social harms, how you bring everyone with you. You don't banish, you don't you know, isolate, incarcerate. You don't have these horrible infractions of human rights that prisons are. You find other ways of dealing with this. And, you know, the the astonishing thing about this project, and I'm always amazed when people watch it and they say, I would have never known these women were in prison because they look like everybody. They look like your sister, your neighbor, your cousin, your aunt, your mom, your whoever. They're human beings. And because we've had the system that others, those, and, you know, it's not... A coincidence that the othering happens largely to indigenous women. 50% of women in federal prison are indigenous. Uh, high numbers of racialized women are in prison. Poor women, women with trauma, women with histories of childhood trauma and domestic violence. They get othered. Why are we othering them? Um, and, and that I think is the beautiful thing about this project is that it it shows these women with their fully embodied with their sense of joy, with their sense of play, with their tattoos, and you can, you see them, you're never thinking, oh, this is a fine Shakespearean actor, you're thinking, here's an extraordinary person with an amazing life history, and they are performing this, and sometimes the arm drops, or sometimes the foot shifts, and that makes them even more human, I mean, you just feel their physicality, and their beingness in the world, and you you can't help but love them,
3: that's true. A couple of things that come to mind for me about the power of dialogue. It's not just the dialogue process and the circle. It's it's about the other details around that, about the context. So a number of years ago, in partnership with um, the Semester for Dialogue at SFU, I took a group into FBI, and we had a dialogue circle there. And it's not it you know. And an elder ran the circle, and she brought out her her medicine pouch, and it was transformative in not only what emerged in the dialogue, but where the dialogue happened, because it starts to break down um, our stereotypes and our and our and our assumptions about who these are, and and so changing up the context makes a big difference. And so, and I also bring students into a, a really interesting prison. Um, that's a partnership with the between the Correctional Service of Canada and the Stehalis Nation, Nation, um, that where they get to witness a ceremony. And it's it's transformational and and very powerful. Some Some people, you know, when I bring them in, they say that was the best professional development ever. And and I happen to know that judges go there for professional development, too, because it's, they're transformational places. And the other thing is that you have to remember, think about wh- whose voice is being heard in that dialogue session, whose be- voice is being heard, whose voice is not being heard. In restorative justice, we say, who's the most affected by this harm at an individual level or in... At a collective level, because we have a lot of harm that happens at a collective level with racialized minorities, for example, and we have to break through those stereotypes of each other. So, so bringing in people with lived experience of our justice system of racialized harm and listening very deeply and carefully in a safe space from their stories can be very transformational. I wanna
1: come back to Natasha because um, this, from the uh, uh, spectator perspective, looked like a really embodied experience for the artists. Like it felt like you were really inhabiting these characters. Um, So how does that help when you're, you're moving out of incarceration back into the outside world? How does that embodied experience help heal that transitional phase?
2: Well, I don't know, I just, I had so much fun with it. Um, Dressing up and becoming another character, I really enjoyed um, my drama classes when I took them in high school. And it's been that long since I'd actually done any acting. Like I've had my own video production company, but I was always behind the camera and I never did anything in front of it really, Um, except for like interviews. But yeah, just dressing in different, I think I was four different characters. I I was the director, the director of the play within the play, I was um Brenda helped me out. <laughs> bottom. You were uh,
0: God, I'm forgetting the names of them too. You were somebody's love interest. Yeah. But Natasha did when Jody was sick, it was bottom, it wasn't puck, filled in for bottom. So you can see it when and we had this idea that more than one woman would play each character, and that was just part of the the nature of it. But you you suddenly see a bottom who is robust, full figured. <laughs> And then there's Natasha, who's a tiny person, and I we one of the poster images that we use is is Natasha's bottom with the donkey head. You know, you'll remember in a Midsummer's Night Dream, it's all about this this enchanted forest, the world of the fairies, and these warring fairies, Oberon and Titania, and uh, Oberon arranges for Puck to cast a spell, and what happens is that. Um, one of the carpenters who's who's in the play is turned into a donkey and the queen of the fairies falls in love with this creature <laughs> so natasha got to play it and, and there's this wonderful scene where we see natasha with the donkey head staring into the pond and you know allegedly being shocked by the transformation so natasha was one of the core core members of this troupe.
2: <laughs> yeah it, it- it was totally different experience than anything anybody could ever really imagine doing something like this because of just having to like the four different characters is one thing but having to actually hold the pose for 60 seconds without moving and all the thoughts that are going through your head while you're doing it it's and trying not to laugh at each other for moving just a little bit and being taught to not look in each other's eyes, eyesight line of sight and <laughs> um being so close to people for 60 seconds, like right up in their faces. And um, it was just, it was a really cool experience And it. I don't think anybody would understand, like even in just regular plays or, you know, tableau vivants are a lot different. Pretty interesting to see how it all turned out too at the end and put it all together into a real story. We have this really cool storyline. Cause at the time we're just shooting different scenes, you know, and didn't see it for what it was gonna be at the end. So it was, yeah, it was a lot of fun.
1: So Natasha, if you were to give some advice to someone who's being invited to participate in such a process, but might be a little scared because it does feel a little vulnerable and a little like out of the ordinary, what advice would you give them?
2: What what I would say to encourage them is that um, just keep an open mind and uh, trust in the process and trust in the in the magical powers that art has to heal and uh, the journey that that you're going to go on. You're you're going to transform you basically is what I would say. Um, it's a really like the Brenda said. It's a transformative process for sure. Uh, it's just like restorative justice and just like all these experiences that. We go through in life, but yeah, this one was one I'll never forget, and it's actually hanging on my wall in my living room. The uh, the picture that I was gifted from this project, I'm so proud of it. It's the first thing you can you see on my wall when you're sitting on my couch. So. <laughs> It's, it's such a
1: wonderful idea to trust in the process. It, it's actually what we tell our students in dialogue. We tell them when you enter these processes, you have to trust that something will transform through it. Uh, but um, the two Brenda's, anything you would uh, say to somebody who's <laughs> a little scared to enter into these processes, ex- especially when that's so organic where you actually don't know what's going to come out?
0: I think that, you know, one of the things that a lot of the women said was, I haven't done this since high school. And high school was the kind of the last moment where you had a context where you could try things, you could engage in art, there was no expectation. Um, So it was really coming back to something that they had buried and had not been in touch with. I mean, some of them, you know, Jesse, whose idea this was, is a writer, you know, many of them are hidden artists. uh, But because of everything that has happened had not been able to get back in touch with that. So this is a way to facilitate getting back in touch with that. And I think it's, you know, it was a very intense community. I mean, I I love these women, I think there was a lot of love in the room. Um, You know, it's hard to maintain that momentum forever. I think just the way that the project was designed, it was kind of That was what we could do was two and a half day shoot six weeks of workshops and then you know you find that people start to drop off a little bit because people have complicated lives and some of them move on and some of them get jobs and etc but it was that one moment that we captured i think in this transition because we were working with women you know as natasha pointed out from two transition houses so anderson lodge which is the indigenous women's lodge and the E Fry um, transition home in uh, New Westminster. And so some of those women literally, I think Rosie who plays puck, who's just this extraordinary woman, um, she just got out. She was the first person I recruited. I went to Anderson Lodge, we met in the basement, we had had a chat and she said, sure, I don't have anything else to do, I'll show up. And then she started talking to the other women in the house. And then the other women in New West started talking to their women. And then some came, some couldn't, you know, stay for the duration, but the core that came were very committed. And I think, you know, I think as we've all said, it was just this extraordinary experience for everybody.
3: Yeah, I'm I'm right back there. Like there was some, there was some really magical moments. And those magical moments just stay with you. Do they just those tra- strong, transformative, magical moments? They just have the capacity in themselves to hold you strong for a long time. And um, and so I would invite people to you know to step into the you know your head is going to tell you one thing, but what is your heart telling you? What do you want to do? What do you want to step into? We're inviting you to a space that we're on this journey together and that's the you know, they say restorative justice is a journey. It's an, it's a verb. It's not a noun and we're in this together. And so we invite people into the journey and you do what your heart said, because it's always got to be voluntary. Do what your heart said, but we really would welcome you into sharing some magical moments with us. And we're going to co-create this together. We don't know where we're going, but we're going to do some serious play together.
0: We also paid the women. <laughs> which was a good inducement, you know, because a lot of them didn't have work at the time. So it really, it really made a difference. And it was a way of honoring their contribution as artists. Uh, so that was very important. And Brenda and I have just applied for another grant to do another round of this. So we will see shortly if, if we got that grant, but we want to keep doing this. So uh, as
1: we wrap up here, maybe uh, from all three of you, is there um, a moment of joy in in the whole process that you can share with our audience today to entice them to try
3: this? yeah there was it was when it all came together at the end that the real magic happens. It's when they looked in the mirror and they saw a different reality for themselves. And we were just all laughing because we all enjoyed those transformative moments. So it was when we looked in the mirror and we saw the real possibilities in each and every one of us. It was absolutely amazing and magical. A really intense alchemy of emotions and definitely joy.
2: Well, for me, I don't like, this wasn't part of the actual shooting or, but it was for me, it was the the workshops. Well, I love the shooting of course, but the workshops were so, so much fun. They gave me so much joy um, doing the pencil drawings that we did with the teacher that came in and we were doing our Fridas and the way that they were all done in a different way by each person. I thought that was really cool. And um, about how much people were just like, wow, I can actually draw. And it sort of brought me back to when um, I was inside and people didn't think they could could draw or be artists. And then there they are doing it. Oh. (laughs) I
1: have a tiny Frida sitting (laughs) on my desk.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So serendipity. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it was. that's just, yeah, then the whole, yeah, the whole thing around Frida and what she represents and everything else too um, that we did that for that workshop was super fun and brought me immense joy.
1: Thank you so much. I I really want to thank all three of you um, for being in dialogue today with me about this experience. And um, I want to mention to folks that if you're interested in learning more about this project, please go to thecircleproject.online backslash what dash fools Um, and we'll also be posting a link on our page and uh, i really encourage people to go check out the website uh, if they can Um, the circle project is a multi-layered project and um, uh, again a wonderful way to be in dialogue on uh, a range of issues so with that a big thank you to both brenda's and to natasha thank you so
2: much thank you that was a pleasure thank you for having me
3: thanks so much
0: Thank you for listening to Talk Dialogue to Me, produced by SFU's Morris J. Wask Center for Dialogue. You can find out more about us at sfu.ca slash dialogue and follow our podcast for more inspiring conversations as we continue to explore all the incredible things dialogue can do.